This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 186th episode, we're returning to Alfred Hitchcock for our Halloween special with The Birds, celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Evan Hunter, cinematography by Robert Burks, starring Rod Taylor as Mitch Brenner, Jessica Tandy as Lydia Brenner, Suzanne Plachette as Annie Hayworth, Tippi Hedren as Melanie Daniels, Veronica Cartwright as Kathy Brenner, Ethel Griffies as Mrs. Bundy, Charles McGraw as Sebastian Scholes, Ruth McDevitt as Mrs. Magruder, and Lonnie Chapman as Deke Carter. Recognition for this movie? The Birds was released on March 28, 1963. It would go on to gross just short of $14 million internationally and finish 17th at the 1963 box office. Unfortunately, critics were very mixed on the film at the time, with the majority hating it or loving it, with very few exceptions in between. The Birds was nominated for one Academy Award for what? Special effects? Yes. For, I believe, the same guy that uh, helped create what we were talking about with the special effects for Mary Poppins, the painting of the cells. Ah, yes. And the special, like, blue screen effect. Okay. With the passage of time, much like many other of Hitchcock's works, the film's standing among critics has much improved. The film has been very influential on the horror genre, inspiring filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro and John Carpenter. Film critic David Thompson refers to it as Hitchcock's last unflawed film, something I wouldn't necessarily say about the film. <laughs> Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini ranked the film among his top 10 favorite films of all time, and Akira Kurosawa ranked the film at number 55 on his top 100 favorite films of all time list. In 2000, The Guardian ranked the scene where the crows gather on the climbing frame at number 16 on their list of the top 100 film moments. The scenes where birds are attacking humans viciously were collectively ranked at number 96 on Bravo's The 100 Scariest Movie Moments. In 2021, the film was ranked at number 29 by Time Out on their list of the 100 best horror movies. The film was honored by the American Film Institute as the seventh greatest thriller in the American cinema. And in 2016, The Birds was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. The Birds currently holds a 94% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 90 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start every week, what is your relationship to this film? I saw the film when I was in college, and then... When your mother and I were either dating or first married, the university, UW-Lacrosse, had it playing. And so I s suggested we go to it. And your mother absolutely freaked out and said she'd never watch it again. So ironically, most of my history with the movie was through her complaining about never wanting to see the movie again. <laughs> and that this had to be the most horrifying thing she had ever seen. And well, it was a big screen, you know, so yeah. And given that there were or are probably a good couple handfuls of major Alfred Hitchcock movies, at least the talking films. I don't know if I'm going to go quite back into his silent film history, but at least of the talking films that I hadn't seen up to this point. We watched one a few weeks ago with The Lady Vanishes that I hadn't seen. This was another one during the pandemic that I wanted to kind of knock out of the way. And at the time, it was right when... Peacock, the NBC Universal service, streaming service, was starting up. And I think this was something that was like an early offering among several of the Hitchcock films. I think they had like a smattering of like 10 different ones that I just watched in succession. And right now I actually had planned because ready to fire up immediately after the birds ed, as I watched it on Peacock again this time was Marnie, another one I haven't seen, mm -hmm. but with Sean Connery and also Tippi Hedren. Also a film that will be mentioned a little bit later in the show. So really, this is only the second time that I've seen it. The first time I saw it, I described it as the most claustrophobic film I've ever seen because 
it has the effect of like a swarm of bees or mosquitoes or flies or whatever else, something that's hovering around your head and you get kind of like suffocated really quickly and you start flailing your arms back and forth. If you don't like things like buzzing around you, that's what this movie accomplishes though. Only in 2d, I can only imagine if somebody that's like a really good horror director, like Jordan Peele, if Jordan Peele remade the birds and made it into 3d, what the fuck that would be. <laughs> I think people would be vomiting in the aisles. Well, I think not only that, I think you'd have people having to have a change of pants. One way or the other, fluids or, you know, secretions would be coming out of them, most likely. Yes. It can be a rather frightening film. Honestly, though, on this second watch, I didn't find it all that frightening. It was kind of tame to me. Now, when you once you've seen it, it's not nearly as bad. The first time seeing it, I thought was much more impactful. Well, I think there's a sense of dread that's accomplished, but I didn't really feel fear the first time watching it. There was more of that, okay, is there going to be something that's actually scary in this? And the second time I'm like, no, this is kind of mild. I mean, okay, so birds are pecking at the door in kind of a supernatural way, like, Okay, they're coming in through the chimney. Yeah, that would probably be more terrifying if actual birds came out of my chimney, but that's not going to happen. The the uh, dead guy in the farmhouse, the Jessica Tandy okay, sure. with, with with his eyes pecked out. That was a little on the gruesome side. Yeah, that's a bit unnerving. I'll give you that. Even this time around, it's kind of a little bit shocking, but you only get a very short time to consume that. He doesn't, True. like, pan on it for an extended period of time. It, it's a fairly quick cut. It was enough, though. Now, the other thing that I think we need to kind of talk about the movie and knock out maybe a bit ahead of time, just to be responsible. There's been a long history going back 20-plus years at this point of what I would say kind of Tippi Hedren's Me Too moment in regards to this and her work on Marnie, and her relationship to Alfred Hitchcock. Specifically that he made advances, whether they were on this movie or they were on the next movie. He used his authority and power to potentially move on her. Well, I had read a biography of him, and basically a lot of his friends and people in, that knew him noted that he was impotent for the last 20-some years of his life. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where this thing sits. Obviously, he's not alive to address it. I know Tippi Edren made the comments about it, and in part, their relationship deteriorated rather significantly after Marnie to the point where she refused to work for him again. But he, he had attractive blondes in every film almost. I mean, whether it was Eva Marie Saint, Kim Novak, Janet Lee, and none of them, none of the others made any comments about it. So I don't know where to, to sit on this. I don't want to disbelieve her, but I also have some questions about it. And I guess at this point in time, I, I don't know what to say because we're just never going to know the absolute truth. To the best of my understanding, some of the antics and seeming quote-unquote punishments were confirmed by Rod Taylor at one point, or at least not denied, but it is at least part of the story of the film. Like, I don't think we can fully go back in time without full corroboration and cancel what would be, I would say, probably your cinematic hero. But at the same time, you know, this isn't something that is implausible for the period of time in which it happened. There were a lot of things going on in Hollywood. There was uh, strong allegations of sexual assault, actual sexual assault against Kirk Douglas. There were against several of the directors. The studio heads? Yes, that was just plain ridiculous. Most of the big producers, 
Jack Warner and Louis B. Mayer specifically. Yes. With that in mind, I mean, I don't want to shut that out of the conversation of the movie, given, you know, what the the nature of Hollywood is and this being somewhat of a lightning rod movie for that particular story. I guess I'm kind of mixed. Yeah, I, I am too. And in part because it took so long for it to come out and long after Hitchcock was dead. So I don't know where to go with this. Let's just put it this way. If I were if I were a prosecutor, I would have to say that I had real question as to it it may have happened, but how do you prove it? That's the problem. So moving topics. This is now the fourth of four consecutive films for Hitchcock that I maintain might be the four best consecutive films made by any director ever. So we have Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, back to back to back, and then he skips a couple of years and does The Birds. The only thing I can think of that comes close to it is Steven Spielberg's run with Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. The only problem with that one is is that the movie 1941 is somehow sandwiched in between those. (laughs) An audience, if you've not seen 1941, don't bother. It's a really strange movie. And it's supposed to be a comedy and it's not funny. Yeah, it's as many things as I have to say about how Animal House has not held up. That movie's even weirder. I was so looking forward to this because I was such a big uh, Bellucci fan. And it was Spielberg, so I thought, oh, this will be great. And then I watched it, and I went, this is horrible. I mean, I don't know how anybody can survive this. It's not even short. I know. It's like, what, two and a half hours long? And it's an hour, yeah, it's an hour and 29 minutes too much. But in the context of Hitchcock's work, I guess I wouldn't say that this is necessarily going to appear in any of his top fives, person to person. This is going to appear in the top fives, but it doesn't have a good shot at being in the top 10. Maybe. Yes. It's going to be a very subjective list. Well, of course it is. Yeah. You're going to have most people coming up with about the same five. I would guess rear window vertigo, North by Northwest psycho. And then you're probably going to throw in one of the 1941s. So I don't think Rope would probably make it for most. You might have Notorious, maybe Rebecca in that top five, but it, that's where we're, you're really cutting hairs. Yes. Maybe a Dial M. Yeah, some people would throw that in. Shadow of a Doubt, some people really love that film. Other than that, I don't know if I would put this ahead of really any of the ones that we've mentioned so far. I'd have Rebecca above it. I would have Psycho, North by Northwest, Rear Window, Dial M, Rope, I would have above this. That being said, it's still a fairly decent movie for a master craftsman. But this is kind of like, it's somebody who makes a good film, but this probably could have been much greater, in my opinion. Uh, Maybe. I mean, he had so many constraints. I mean, with CGI now, he could have done so much more with this. I think that's, I think he was limited by the technology and the innovations that were available to him. So I think probably for the time frame, it was about the best you were going to do. Well, if you're ready, we can dig more into the background of the film. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Alfred J. Hitchcock's The Birds is a masterful thriller that proves once again why the director is a true cinematic genius. Set in the quaint coastal town of Bodega Bay, the film opens with a chance encounter between the handsome lawyer, Mitch Brunner, Rod Taylor, and the enigmatic socialite, Melanie Daniels, Tippi Hedren. This seemingly innocuous meeting sets up the stage for a spine-tingling and unforgettable descent into avian terror. As Melanie follows Mitch to his family home in Bodega Bay, the tranquil coastal scenery gradually transforms into a nightmarish battleground as the local bird population inexplicably turns hostile 
Seagulls, crows, and sparrows become relentless aggressors, attacking the townsfolk without provocation. Hitchcock ingeniously uses the unexplained bird attacks as a metaphor for the uncontrollable and irrational fears that lurk in the human psyche. As the bird attacks intensify, the inhabitants of Bodega Bay are forced to confront their vulnerability in the face of a seemingly unstoppable force. Hitchcock's genius lies in his ability to create a sense of mounting dread by employing a series of escalating avian attacks, building tension with each feathered assault while weaving a complex narrative that delves into the fragility of human society, subtly exposing the tenuous grip we have on our environment and our emotions. Thank you. Did you know? Alfred Hitchcock revealed on The Dick Cavett Show that 3,200 birds were trained for the movie. He said the ravens were the cleverest and the seagulls were the most vicious. Did you know? Mitch Zanuck, owner of the Tides restaurant at the time of shooting, told Alfred Hitchcock he could shoot there if the lead male in the movie was named after him, and Hitchcock gave him a speaking part in the movie. Hitchcock agreed. Rod Taylor's character was named Mitch Brenner, and Mitch Zanuck was given a speaking part. After Melanie is attacked by a seagull, Mitch Zanuck can be heard saying to Mitch Brenner, What happened, Mitch? Did you know? Rod Taylor claims that the seagulls were fed a mixture of wheat and whiskey. It was the only way to get them to stand around so much. <laughs> uh, I know the feeling. Did you know? The classic scene in which Tippi Hedren watches birds attacking the townsfolk was filmed in the studio from a phone booth. When Melanie opens the phone booth door, a bird trainer had trained gulls that were taught to fly at it. Surviving photos of the shooting of the scene were published in the book Hitchcock at Work by Bill Crone. For anybody needing extra material for their Christmas list. Did you know? Sir Alfred Hitchcock approached Joseph Stefano, screenwriter of Psycho, to write the script, but he wasn't interested in the story. The final screenplay from a Daphne du Maurier story was written by Evan Hunter, best known to detective story fans under the pen name Ed McBain. Who, uh, what other movie did Hitchcock do that was written by de Mornier? Well, that's a pretty obvious one. Which one? It's Rebecca. Okay. Come on, who are you talking to, man? Yeah, well, sometimes you surprise me. That's surprising? No, that you don't know something. Oh. Okay, I'm not sure when that would have come up last, but all right. Either way, that's a good spot for our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 187th episode, we discuss the best picture winner of 1988 with Rain Man, celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Directed by Barry Levinson, written by Barry Morrow and Ronald Bass, Music by Hans Zimmer, starring Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, first up is best performance. Who do you have? I have Hitchcock. I mean, this is a craft of his work. The timing, the shots, the vision. So I just went with him. I have him as my best secondary performance because there are flares of his, but I think comparative to Psycho or Vertigo, this is much less of a meticulously made movie where he obsessively made every shot that was involved. I think part of that has to do with this is about the time that Alfred Hitchcock presents had gotten pretty big, right? It was about early 1960, 61, 62. Eh, he may have spread himself a little thin. But for me, best performance, because it kind of has to make the film. There isn't much of a score. The cinematography, for the most part, is pretty ordinary in my mind. I had Ube Iwerks, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the special effects creation or artist at Disney, no less. Even though this was a universal film, they sent this out to other studios to do the special effects work. And we already mentioned, I think he's the same guy that helped create the uh, Mary Poppins special effects when they did the panel painting and the blue screen work for that film the following year that kind of created the medium. So this was kind of early on 
special effects for how to animate stuff in the background before computer graphics were able to be used. Because obviously that was much further away into the future when we got to things like Jurassic Park. This, though, you can kind of see the special effects are pretty bad or pretty dated. But for the time, I'm sure this was revolutionary. And so for me, because the birds actually being able to attack is the whole point of the movie. Without that, this movie suffers incredibly. So to be able to pull that off and to make it terrifying for people, I give him my best performer. Okay. Hitchcock I had as my best secondary because there still are, as I mentioned, those artistic stylings, the way you can kind of slow play a scene, the way he'll draw something out. He shows you the birds all lined up on the jungle gym or around the, the or uh, on the telephone wires. And so you can always see them lurking around, but you're never sure when they're going to attack. And so he creates this suspense and the dread that's all a part of this. You can see them kind of pecking through the door, but it's only when Mitch goes to the bathroom to clean himself up or clean up the cut that he has on his wrist that he actually notices it. So then he has to put the armoire in front of the door. You know, things of that nature that build upon in all of his movies are still there. And I think it's what's effective about the movie. If you're creating that level of dread and suspense, that still makes it somewhat scary. I don't think that any of the performers particularly brought it home for me as much as the overall aesthetic of the film, which Hitchcock is solely responsible for. Well, I had for my secondary performance, Tippi Hedren. Having watched the film a couple of times before, watching her performance, she seemed to do a really nice job of conveying the shock and horror that she was going through. You know, subsequently find out that some of the things were done by Hitchcock to her in order to get that reaction, such as instead of using mechanical birds when she's in the room upstairs... He was having the trainer throw birds in her face. So some of it was maybe not acting, but still I thought her performance was overall uh, the best in the film. I, I would note Jessica Tandy's performance was pretty decent itself and her range. I mean, she, I think this might've been the first film that she had done with Hitchcock, but her husband is Hume Cronin and the two, the Hitchcocks and Cronin Tandy were friends from the 1940s. Both she and Hume Cronin did a lot of writing or co-writing with Hitchcock on several of his films in the late 40s and early 50s. So I just wanted to mention her because it's not going to be mentioned any other place. I would say we get strong performances from all four, but just a side note, as far as I was aware, and I thought I brought this out in the research, Hume Cronin was an advisor on the script for the movie. Okay. It wouldn't surprise me because like I said, he uh Hitchcock really liked him and uh and really appreciated his input on script writing. So I, I even if he was not credited on some of these films, Hume would actively participate in them and Hitchcock made sure he was taken care of. Most charismatic. Ironically, I would have probably said Tippy Hedren going back to the first time I watched it, but the more I actually watched it in this version, I thought of Rod Taylor. I thought he was kind of the calm, strong presence within the film. And if anything, I thought his charisma, his quiet strength, allowed the film to be a lot less scary than it probably could have been. He just seems to be very calm, very level-headed. So I think there's a bit of a magnetism when... In a crisis, you look to the person that seemingly is the calmest. And for me, it was him throughout the film. He just seemingly knew what to do or was able to get people into the right situations and had a plan or had an idea on how to counteract everything else that was going on. And that's just not something that's usual to most horror films. Most of them are just screaming their heads off or hiding in the uh, garage full of chainsaws. Yes, is like the commercial well, of course he would. He's a, he was a lawyer. Yeah, I'm sure there are no lawyers that would freak out in the middle of a crisis. 
Well, you're the one who refers to me as unsettlingly calm in crisis. Yeah, that's you. Yeah. I've met plenty of other lawyers. Well, maybe it's just how much they've been drinking that makes a difference. Before or after lunch? <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I had Tippy Hedren as my most charismatic. I mean, not only did she look like a movie star throughout the film, and you had a just, she had a certain charm that she presented throughout uh, an elegance. Not to mention the fact that she was the matron of three generations of pretty good-looking actresses, with her daughter being Melanie Griffith, her granddaughter being Dakota Johnson. So it, there was a stark quality that seemed to permeate through the genes. Let's move to best scene, then. I have seven down. So I have the pet store opening. I have the delivering of the lovebirds. I have Annie and Melanie. So kind of the conversation between the two of them when she comes home and they talk about Mitch and how Annie arrived in Bodega Bay to begin with. I have the attack at the schoolhouse. I have the attack at the restaurant because those are pretty close, but I would separate those still because there is a moment of calm before the full restaurant attack, which I think is probably the most famous scene from the movie. I have the final attack, and then I have driving away. So the final few moments when they leave the house, get into the car, and try and go out of Bodega Bay. Anything to add? Well, I know it's probably not technically a scene, but the opening credits, because I'll start out and go, that was my best scene. Having uh, not seen it for several years, the fact that Hitchcock was notorious for wanting to be visual as opposed to audio, the opening credit is the sound of these birds with this hypnotic sounds that just were ominous and set a stage that you knew something was going to happen that you're not necessarily expecting. And for me, looking at that, it was unlike anything Hitchcock had ever done before or that I know of that had been done after this. And to me, that's one of the most I don't know. I, I found it the most fascinating part of the film, having watched it again now. I think I might nominate both the attack at the schoolhouse and the attack at the restaurant because they are so very close. If I had to pick one, I'll probably go with the attack at the restaurant because of the degree of technical shots and set effects that they were having to do, specifically with the gas and there's another one where he's slow playing, setting something up. You see the gas starting to leak out across the road and then down into the parking lot. And you're you're waiting for something to happen because no, you know it, there will be some spark that lights it for some unknown reason, but you don't know what it is until you see the guy lighting his cigar and then it explodes. But it's even the stuff before that, the conversations in the diner as to well, birds wouldn't attack. They're harmless creatures, but there's billions upon billions of birds that are across the entire world. You couldn't possibly kill them all. You know, things of that nature, setting up, there is no rhyme or reason for the birds attacking, and we couldn't possibly get rid of them all. They're a menace, and they could be anywhere, anytime, and attack from anywhere. That scene kind of oddly was a bit reminiscent of stuff that you see in like Jaws. I thought that that, especially with being on the lake and the guys with the fishing boats and the community kind of gathered together in the little restaurant waiting for stuff to happen that just kind of had a weird kind of like mental callback to me of watching Jaws at certain points in the film. So I'll go with that one. And then you have the technical aspect of the overhead shots. You have the phone booth and all of the birds that are attacking during that. I'll, I'll go with that favorite scene though. You know, I'm a sucker for quiet monologue scenes, good line deliveries, people kind of getting to know each other. So I'm going to go with Annie and Melanie. I love that conversation between the two of them of how Annie comes to find herself in Bodega Bay becomes the school teacher. She's following Mitch, all of the problems that are going on with Lydia. And you're like, is Lydia responsible for the birds attacking? Is she somehow like the Wiccan that is drawing them all down upon <laughs> Tippy Hedron? Obviously that 
doesn't come to pass, but you know, that it subtly implants certain things in your mind, especially if you watched a number of horror films over the years. So I'll go with that one. Cause I think that's a well-delivered scene between the two of them. I think there's good chemistry and there's just something off about everything Annie says and does during the course of the film, just the way she looks at certain times. Yes. I having grown up watching Suzanne Lachette on the Bob Newhart show, that's all I'd ever seen her in. It wasn't like she had to do a lot of heavy acting. But in this case, she did a pretty good job that you knew that there was more to the story and you could sense that she still had feelings for Mitch that she just didn't want to say because she seemed like she was perturbed every time something would happen that would normally cause jealousy. But she didn't portray it as jealousy. She portrayed it as kind of an annoyance or a blank look. So I thought it was a it's a good scene. I understand why you pick as your favorite. I went with my favorite being the restaurant scene, simply because everything from the woman, you know, screaming, you're evil, to uh, the gas pumps blowing up and everything going on and around. I just thought it was a great scene overall. So that's why I picked that as my favorite. Do you want to go on for most indelible moment or do you want me to? Go ahead. Well, I went with the attack on the schoolhouse. The memory is still clear in my head and had been before I started watching it was was uh, Tippy Edron and the kids running down the road and just the sheer terror and thinking of what it would be like to be a little child and having these birds that you've never imagined could be terrifying or harmful now suddenly attacking you and how it would completely disrupt your thought and create a a certain level of paranoia that would be difficult to ever eradicate. Yeah. I, uh, I did remember a few things. I think the restaurant scene was one of the ones that I remembered the most, but if I think back on the first time I watched it to what I was thinking going into this version of watching the movie again, to me, the most indelible thing was always going to be the pretty, abrupt and innocuous ending because it just kind of like we're going to go out to the car and the movie's just going to end. The birds just kind of sit there and they don't attack, which given that they've now attacked twice within a very short span of time, like why are they not coming after you again? I, I didn't quite understand what they were intending to mean by the ending or anything other than it was just abrupt. And so to me, because it's kind of, unusual it it doesn't give you any resolution i went with that because it's always seemed a little off to me it's the one thing that i would say is really in my opinion flawed about the movie i think he didn't want to have a resolution i think he wanted you to still imagine the birds being predatory and dangerous so that you carried that level of terror or fear with you when you left the theater Well, obviously, because he released birds on the crowd at the premiere. (laughs) He also put speakers in the trees surrounding the theaters with bird cawing. (laughs) Uh, uh, Hitch, he loved a good joke. (sighs) Yeah, but apparently not critics. But that's a good spot for our second break. We will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 170 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do. Suzanne Summers, 76, American actress. Uh, was uh, best known for her role as Chrissy on Three's Company. She also did uh, shows Step by Step, and she's the sheriff, also known as a great infomercial uh, spokesperson. The Thigh Master, of which I guess she made close to $100 million. Phyllis Coates, 96, American actress. 
Adventures of Superman, Superman and the Mole Man, Good Night, and Sweet Marilyn. First credited on-screen Lois Lane. Yes. Mark Goddard, 87, American actor, was in the TV show Lost in Space. He was in The Detectives and Blue Sunshine. Rudolph Isley, 84, American Hall of Fame singer with the Isley Brothers. He also was a songwriter. It's Your Thing, That Lady, Twist and Shout, which is an anthem at this point in time for my generation, and writer of Summer Breeze. Yeah, but the version of Twist and Shout that you guys are most familiar with is the covered version that the Beatles did, and then more popularized during Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a movie that you have nothing but disdain for. (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. And then Piper Laurie, 91, American actress, was in the film Carrie, The Hustler, Paul Newman. I'm waiting to get an opportunity to do that film. And Children of a Lesser God, three-time Oscar nominee for all three of those films. I think I can make an exception. It would come open for availability for a large anniversary in two years. So not this next year, but since I already have next year's calendar already made up, when I start making the following year's calendar uh, for 2025, provided that we, we can actually get to it by that point. I know I'm a crazy person, but that I believe the hustler was 1960. So it should be eligible at that point for its 65th anniversary. It was. And I remember the first time having seen it as I recorded it off of AMC and I used to take when my when your mother and I were dating, I would take my VCR up to uh, lacrosse, and so we would lay on the or on the couch in the dead of winter in her extremely cold apartment with blankets on and watch movies. And so that was the first time I had seen it, and I absolutely loved the film. And I think I'll say right now, my guess is having not seen it in a while, but the best uh, performance is going to be Jackie Gleason. Interesting. Actually, George C. Scott, I think, is probably the best performance for me in that movie. Yeah. But even so, I I will say, I did try and show your youngest daughter that movie during the pandemic, and <laughs> she refused to finish it. Because <laughs> it didn't make any sense to her. Because it was, it's a movie that completely lacks action. Yes. It's a completely intellectual film. And also, it's not explicit in its intentions, and it's much more subtle. Yes. And you're, all the women in my family have difficulties extrapolating. I wouldn't sell yourself short on that as well. Uh, no, I have no problem with it. You have a definite problem when it comes to things that are abstract. It's why uh, you don't like science fiction. Okay. Anyway, we remember these five here for their contributions in TV, art, music, and theater with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's make the transition to best funniest lines. I don't have many on here. I think I only have three. Mrs. Bundy. Because there are... 8,650 species of birds in the world today, Mr. Carter. It is estimated that 5,750,000,000 birds live in the United States alone. The five continents of the world kill them all. Get rid of the messy animals. Probably contain more than 100 billion birds. That was such a stereotype of, uh, of an anthologist. Or, or th- anthropologist? No, an orthologist. Ah, well, because anthology is much different. Yes, orthologist. That's like American Horror Story. It's somebody who studies birds. I think that, isn't that an ornithologist? Yeah, maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe I just got it wrong. Oh, well. I don't know. It's just not an ophthalmologist. I don't know. There are times it could be a proctologist. Mm. Anyway, mother and diner to Melanie. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? They say, when you got here, the whole thing started. Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of this. I think you're evil. Evil! Lydia Brenner. I wish I were a stronger person. I lost my husband four years ago. 
you know? It's terrible how you depend on someone else for strength and then suddenly all of the strength is gone and you're alone. I'd love to relax sometime. I'd love to be able to sleep. Sebastian Scholl's Fisherman in the Diner. Well, maybe we're all getting a little carried away with this. Admittedly, a few birds did act strange, but that's no reason to. Melanie, I keep telling you, this isn't a few birds. These are gulls, crows, swifts. Mrs. Bundy, I have never known birds of different species to flock together. The very concept is unimaginable. Why, if that happened, we wouldn't stand a chance. How could we possibly hope to fight them? Mrs. Bundy, birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty to the world. That's all I got. I'm out. All right. You want to move to the Stanley rubric then? That's fine. Okay. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. This is a film that has gained an appreciation and knowledge since it was released. It is a film that people who are cinephiles like and appreciate, but it is not broadly considered one of Hitchcock's greatest films. But it's probably, again, like we said, within this top 10, and probably one of the greatest, I guess the genre would be horror films. So from a legacy on the industry, I went with a four. For legacy for the public, this is a film that has faded from the consciousness of the general public. There are a lot of people, when you talk about it or mention it, some of people will go, oh yeah, and other people kind of look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? So I tried to go as evenly as I could from a legacy standpoint. So I went with a 7.5 for the public, or excuse me, a 2.5 for the public, which gives me a 6.5 overall. So that's interesting. Very interesting. Because that would have been the exact same scoring that I had. But sitting here thinking about it, just in while you were talking, we have scored lesser for movies the public has not seen. And of anybody that you mention this to, you might get it based on reputation or the title that they might know some association of what happens in the movie. But how many people can you really verifiably say have seen this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's 60 years old. So I don't know how many there would. I'm going to drop mine down to a two for the public. I think from critic circles, yes, a four is warranted because this has had some genre-specific influence with certain directors and other people in the industry, specifically at the time. And this is probably the last major work of Hitchcock's career that people revere, even if it was kind of one of those that they found much later, like Vertigo, and raised it up over time. I still don't think it can go to a full five, because it doesn't have like complete reverence among all movies in the same way that some of the other ones that just came before it, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Rear Window, Psycho, have. I... I will go with a four and a two for a six overall. Okay. So that actually would put it at a 4.25 average between the two of us. No, 6.25. Did I say that incorrectly? You said 4.25. Oh, then yes, you're correct. Impact and significance. This was not a particularly big film in the moment that it was made. I think this was about the point in time where a lot of Hitchcock movies kind of got shut out because this was his work on TV. And so they were kind of stiff arming him away from any awards consideration or anything else that had to do with it. It's only nomination was for special effects, which I'll get to in a second when we come to novelty, but the sword in the stone, the great escape, Dr. No son of flubber were all bigger movies than this. Yes. Even Charade, which you've claimed is the most Hitchcockian film that he'd never made himself, were all much, much bigger films. This was kind of down the list. I mean, there are other ones that finished below it that we know of, specifically Hood, which is a Paul Newman film. But I just don't think that this was necessarily a big movie in its moment, both among the critics who weren't sure what to do with it, and it's only kind of gotten its flowers 
post reconsideration and because of the mixed response, the lack of awards attention, the lack of the interest from the public at large at the time, I'm going to go with a three for the, for the industry because there was still some positive reviews for this. I'm going to go right down the middle for a 2.5 for the audience. So I have a 5.5. I went with a 2.5 for the industry because the reviews were mixed. And I went with the 2.5 for the public because even though it didn't draw well, it did draw some and it made back its money. It wasn't a huge film, but it was passable for the time. So I'm at a five. All right. I'll give you the choice. You can either go first on novelty or classicness. I will take classicness. All right. Novelty. The special effects for this film we gave high marks for Mary Poppins for some of the blue screen and special effects work in that film. But it struck me watching the film back this time, how much was used as far as extra technology to get the birds on screen, both mechanical or non-mechanical, and yet do it with practical effects at the time. This is somewhat of an extraordinary accomplishment for the era in which it was made. This is a movie that probably should have been made 20 years after it was done. And yet, even though I think the effects don't hold up as well, it's novel in just the attempt or the audacity to make a picture like this, probably before it was ready to be made to begin with. That being said, I also have additional points on here because before this movie, most of the horror films of the era were monster movies. So if we're going to give credit for him creating kind of the first serial killer movie with Psycho, we also have to give him credit for creating the first of its kind in animal attack films, which we've had with Piranha or with Jaws or whatever you want to stick in there. There have been plenty of those as well, even to the point of Cocaine Bear. So I went with a 9.5. Okay. I think this is somewhat of a an, a unicorn the more you think about it. If you just take it at first glance and don't think about the individual pieces as they add up, I probably would have had less or given this kind of a middling score. But as you kind of feel your way out, both the historical and the mechanical context, I think this needs to be scored much higher. Well, my thought on this was is this film is the first in a series of nature rebelling against humans. This is kind of a uh, an ecological film, really, which was we never really think about birds or we treat birds as kind of inferior and we don't care. And so they rise up to attack us because we're not apparently doing anything to take care of. I mean, this opening scene in the pet shop shows all the birds in cages. That's how we're treating them. And so it's kind of like the birds rebel. So to me, that's the first time I had ever thought of a film within that context. So I had a nine, but your statements on some of this with the technology and such, I'm tending to give it another half point up to agree with you. It's always nice when you come up to the right side of things and then I don't have to do much more math. So that's a 9.5. So you said you wanted to go first on classicness, so go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> this film, I mean, you, you talk about Rod Taylor being a, a calming influence. This film is basically a female-oriented film. You didn't see a whole lot of the main characters being female at that time. So it's unique. But then I have to take into account some of the comments of Tippi Hedren and what took place afterwards with Marnie and what's going on. So I had to give it some points down. And I think I would have originally given it about a nine, but I'm going to have to mark it down to a seven. All right. So we're going to be very different in our scorings. Okay. So one of the parts that I usually focus on that I don't think you give as much credit for is the aesthetic feeling within the movie. So this is supposed to be a horror film, and much like comedy, I grade this partially due to does this still scare me, or is it something where I feel a lot of dread? 
And I'll be honest, the first time you watch the film, you might feel that, but the second time, it just wasn't there for me. The special effects are dated. The ambiguous ending leaves me a little middling at the end. And by 2023 standards, this isn't even as scary as stuff that I've seen on TV, like on network TV. <laughs> okay. So if you're just taking it on that basis, I would have to knock it down a few points. Hitch is still very good at what he does in this movie, but I just don't think this holds up as well as something like Psycho or Vertigo due to the meticulous choices and the amount of takes and specific shots that he wanted. This felt much more like, I have a good idea for a movie, I'm going to go out and shoot it, and then we're going to return and do whatever the hell I want with my TV show, because that's taking the majority of my time. He was not really in the editing. He was not as choosy about his location settings or some of the other things that he would have been on previous movies. He was not as obsessive as he was making something like Vertigo. So to me, despite being a very claustrophobic movie, I just don't think this holds up on the aesthetic level that well either. And that's before we even get to the controversy side of things, where we might take this to an even bigger dip. I think I might have been harsh in my original scoring when I was going to go maybe a three, but I'll raise it up slightly to a four because a lot of the things about this movie that I, I think should be where you define a classic horror film. Like I would say Psycho is much more scary and dreadful and creates a, a certain ambiance that this one just does not have. So to me, that's much more classic. So it kind of by association knocks this down a little bit. Sure. I guess I go for a four. So that'd be a 5.5 average. Yes, it would. Rewatchability. The likelihood of me putting this on is about a 2.5. It's still a Hitchcock movie. I don't mind it. It's not my favorite Hitchcock movie, but it's something that I could study. And maybe one of these days I'll figure out what the fuck he was trying to do with the ending. And thus why I'd give it a 3.5 for leaving it on because maybe I'll figure it out someday. So I have a six. Well, I'm at 7.5 because this is a film that if it's on, I'll stop and watch for a while. I'm not going to turn it off if it's on. I may even suggest to other people that I'll watch it. And so... That's where I come through with the 7.5. So that's a 6.75 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 80% for Google users and 83% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.15. So to recap the categories, we have a 6.25 for Legacy, a 5.25 for Impact and Significance, a 9.5 for Novelty, a 5.5 for Classicness, a 6.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.15 for audience score, giving us a final total of 41.4 and placing it on our list between the artist and love actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have an eclectic list to say the least, and it's only going to get more eclectic as we go along. I'm sure. As always, if you disagree with our score, you can write us at Greatest All Time Movie Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our socials at Gmote Podcast on Instagram, X, or TikTok. Or you can write us on the website, RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash Gmote Podcast. Let us know what you think and if uh, we got something wrong with our scoring. Let's move to remaining questions. The number one question Why do the birds attack? I don't think it's, it's clear. It could be a backlash, you know, the birds rebelling about how they're treated in general. It could be something affecting them. But, I mean, birds have been known to attack humans in isolated instances. But, I don't know. Other than shitting on them from above, I don't know of too many <laughs> situations where birds necessarily attack maybe one isolated bird attacking one isolated person, but never in yes. like flocks. No. So there has to be maybe some supernatural effect that comes over them, some curse, or you're not supposed to know. And the effect the birds have, I don't know if that's supposed to just represent that nature could attack you at any time or something else, but the lack of any, 
causal relationship with this, I actually think detracts from the movie a little bit in my eyes, but that's just me. I don't like the ambiguity of it. Well, there's just no explanation. You can, you know, it's a Rorschach test. You can put in what you want. I mean, I could be real elaborate, but I'm not going to be. I actually think if they had extrapolated the original source material, it probably would have been an even scarier movie because there's no rhyme or reason for the birds attacking, but the birds also don't like attack in an organized group or at certain points in time or a mass and then swoop in and try and attack again, but then don't bother to try and attack you while you're trying to leave. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to the birds actually attacking or anything with that. At least in the source material, the original short story by Demarie, they just attack and everybody basically dies. And so it's a much bleaker picture. I think that actually would have been a more affecting movie, if you ask me. But then that leads me to believe, are the birds supernatural? Because I don't remember there being any fucking woodpeckers, but they're seemingly able to pick through a solid door with relative ease. I don't know. The number of birds that have knocked themselves silly or died uh, flying into the windows of our sunroom. Okay, but that's knocking themselves silly. I mean, or I... Or dying. Yes, that's fine. I know that they're, you know, not the smartest of creatures, and if they see through, you know, from one side to the next, they probably think they can just swoop through and they don't know the concept of glass or a window. But that's Correct. outside of the realm of knocking or pecking their way through a solid, at least inch-thick wood door. Okay. Or being able to swoop in through a telephone booth. It just seems like they're... Yeah, it seems like they're a bit supernatural. And so it would have been nice to have a little bit of backstory, like, you know, why the birds are upset, who's controlling them, something like that. The other thing that is a little odd to me about the film why is the last shot of the film in black and white? I'm not sure it's in black and white. It's, it's just definitely in black of, and white. Absence of color. I, I don't see where there's a difference, but it's definitely in black and white. Well, I think it was to show that there was no resolution, that whatever caused this, we're not sure of, but it's not necessarily ending. All right. You have any remaining questions? I don't. Okay. Final thoughts for the week. I'm kind of disappointed that uh, the actors unions are still on strike and that the uh, studio heads have basically walked out on negotiations. So getting anything done um, this year is becoming a, uh, a possibility that will no longer exist. Yeah. The amount of TV shows ready to go right now that I really I'm looking forward to or I'm ready to watch is minimal. Like there isn't a lot on right now that I'm really looking forward to. At least with the movie calendar, there's some stuff coming out that I am looking forward to as far as the like award slate. But then after that, going into the early part of next year, it's going to be very barren between the long writer strike or between the continuing actor strike. I don't know what's necessarily going to happen with any of it because I don't know what's still to come if they have enough that's produced and shot for certain movies or TV shows, if they can actually finish stuff up. There's stuff that's international that is going to be able to come out that isn't subject to all the strikes. But I'm also pissed that Netflix has decided to jack up its prices again because they're getting rewarded by the shareholders and Disney's jacking up their prices. And so you're going to have to start picking. I mean, I right now have access to every major streamer there is, and even some of the lesser ones. But I'm going to start having to pick and choose because I can't afford to do seven or eight bucks on Apple and seven or eight bucks on Peacock and $23 for the non-ad version of Netflix per month or the, you know, like $21 version of ad-free for Hulu and then add in like another 12 or $13 for Disney Plus and all of this other shit. And I'm getting tired of the nickel and diming. And now that, you know, the cheap streaming era is over, fuck yourselves, Warner Brothers. You were relying and you were happy to give us cheap content. 
And now you've created an expectation and you're going to take it away. And I think there's going to be a complete rebellion because there's a lot of available cheap and relatively free content. And the more you try and nickel and dime everybody at a theater or with your streaming service, the less you're going to actually be able to survive. It may not make sense to you in the short term, but your long-term availability, I don't know if you're going to survive to the level with YouTube and TikTok being two of the primary competitors, and that shit's free. Yeah. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I get my boxer shorts at Kmart in Cincinnati. Next week, for our 187th episode, we discuss the Best Picture winner of 1988, Rain Man, celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Directed by Barry Levinson, written by Barry Morrow and Ronald Bass. Music by Hans Zimmer, starring Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page on a Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, X, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 